Hello, and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we look at the 1959 Southern Gothic mystery film, Suddenly Last Summer, based on the play by Tennessee Williams, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, with the screenplay by Gore Vidal and Tennessee Williams, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Katherine Hepburn, and Montgomery Clift. To get us started, here is a synopsis. The plot centers on a young woman who, at the insistence of her wealthy aunt, is being evaluated by a psychiatric doctor to receive a lobotomy after witnessing the death of her cousin Sebastian while traveling with him in Spain the previous summer. Trigger warnings for this episode are sexual assault, sexual harassment, intense, disturbing subject matter, and scenes. We do want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We go in depth on every aspect of the plot, so if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. And we're here. And we're here. And so let's- Suddenly. Yeah, suddenly. Welcome, Doug, for your second appearance, uh, I guess would be (laughs) the word, on the podcast. This is a little bit more serious than the last time you were on, because last time we talked about Burglar with Whoopi Goldberg, Uh which was just a ridiculous movie. Fun, but ridiculous. This time we we fully plunged into the drama and the, I don't know, would you call this a thriller or horror? Uh, I think it's hmm. technically gothic horror. I could see that and I'm okay with anybody that says that. I mean, I I think of it as a very, I don't want to say standard drama. But I, I, you know, and that's tough when people say things like drama. I mean, there's so many different areas that that could sort of dip into. I mean, this has location wise, like such a gothic feel to it that the garden is gorgeous and that house is amazing. And it has all those gothic elements in there. And yeah, I think mystery, maybe. I don't want to spoil why I like this, but it's it's also kind of overly dramatic, almost pushing into camp at times which I kind of love that like the performances in this are the things that I constantly look at and I'm like this is wild like what is Elizabeth Taylor doing it is great because of that if they didn't go as far as they did in their performances I feel like it might drag a little bit I don't know yeah I agree in that watching it this time may have been I'm gonna say maybe only the third or fourth time I've seen this it dragged a little more for me on this watch than it has in the past I had completely forgotten that they had to take her from one institution to another where I was like why are you doing like why is this part in this movie so in that sense and and those types of scenes it it did drag a little bit but like I said if it wasn't Elizabeth Taylor if it wasn't Montgomery Clifton and and Catherine Hepburn I I don't think I would have been as invested or I really feel like those scenes would have felt a little more unnecessary than they do but the fact that these people are on screen doing what they do makes it Enjoyable. Yes, very much. So this movie came out in 1959, which was the year that Hawaii was admitted as a state. An international agreement is signed to preserve Antarctica. Mattel released Barbie doll. The first picture of Earth from space was taken by Explorer 6. Xerox launched the first commercial copier. And the Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton was the number one song. And the number one movie was Ben-Hur, which I've Wait, never seen. I haven't either. I was just looking at the Battle of New Orleans. Is that the, um, where we fired our guns and the British kept the coming? So happy two-year anniversary to us. Happy two-year anniversary, Lara. We are taking it back to where we all started with Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. Did we say that at the same time? Almost. 
Well, I don't, I wonder if I have a little bit of a delay and maybe we actually did say it at the same time, but. On my end, we're saying it at the same time. Okay. Quarantine is still happening. COVID is still here. So we are recording separately today. That's yeah. still a thing. COVID's still a thing. If you're listening in the future, I hope it's not. But it is right now. Yeah. But let's not talk about that. Because I've been listening to some podcasts. It's really weird to listen to the ones like as quarantine was starting and everybody was like, oh, oh, what are we going to do? It was so, it's so scary. And we're trying to figure out technology. And it's like, oh, wow, that was just a few months ago. But it feels like forever. And I don't want to hear about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm over it. We won't talk about that anymore. Well, we might. It comes up. That's true. Still over it. This we're talking... About suddenly last summer. Which they say four times at least in this movie. Suddenly last summer. When suddenly last summer. In the Encantadas. With the sea turtles and the flesh-eating birds. Oh my god. I just want to be Catherine Hepburn in this movie. I want to be Miss Mrs. Venable. She is just, oh, icon. You know, something I just realized. What? She doesn't open the movie because obviously she's not in the very first scene. But she basically like bookends this movie with coming down in her elevator and then ends the movie by going up in the elevator. Yeah, that's how you meet her and that's how you say goodbye to her. And what a way. Oh my god, we'll get there, but what an entrance. Two years. Can you believe we've been doing this for two years? I can't. I I remember doing the first episode. We were sitting on my mattress. I don't even think I had sheets on. I think it was like laundry day. And we're just sitting on my mattress in in my old place. My horrible old apartment. Yeah, it was really, really dark in there. We had one microphone. Look at us now. We have both have microphones and headphones phones and pop filters and all sorts of gear and equipment. I have fancy sound equipment that I'm using or a sound software system. So so much can change in two years, yet so little because I still ramble. We haven't yet been guests on other podcasts. So if you want us and our witty and thoughtful musings on your podcast, just let us know. Yeah. We're available. We do podcasts, weddings, bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Just, you know, really anything to suit your fancy. That kind of sounds like I'm prostituting us out. And I might be. We'll see what comes of it. I was like, Uh, I can't do any of this because I'm married and I don't think my husband would be cool with that. So, Lara, you're going to have to take one for the team. He doesn't let you talk to people? No. Oh. Lara, this isn't called fatal feminist. That's right. Married people aren't allowed to talk to people. I forget. Obviously. Obviously. No, but I'm really excited that we've been doing this two years. Years and I'm kind of excited for, or I'm not kind of excited, I'm very excited for upcoming episodes because I feel like this is the first year I'm having more inspiration on choices because you really do the lion's share of picking our, our movies and what we cover. Oh, I'm just looking forward to adding more things, especially because now you said we can do Jennifer's Body and I'm so excited. Yeah, that'll be coming up for our October The Monster Within Us theme. Oh, but who is the villain in Jennifer's Body? Jennifer's Body? Or everyone in Jennifer's body. I don't know. I just don't feel like the demon's the bad guy. But we're not here to talk about Jennifer's body. No. (laughs) We're here to talk about Suddenly Last Summer. It's just a powerhouse film, in my opinion. You have two super powerful, dynamic performances by two of the best actresses ever, in my opinion. You have Liz Taylor, you have Katherine Hepburn. And it's kind of cool because at that time, Liz Taylor was really on the rise. She was a really hot commodity. And Katherine Hepburn was an established star, kind of going into retirement, if you will. She It was kind of in her older years. This movie actually took her away from Spencer Tracy when he was really, really sick. So it wasn't actually a really fun experience for her. But then, sandwiched in between 
between these two powerhouse women is Montgomery Clift, who every time I watch this movie, I appreciate his performance more and more because it's so realistic. I just, I like his character. I've always, I've always liked Dr. Kukulitz. Especially because this was a very hard movie for him. He'd been in a car accident mm-hmm. and had become heavily dependent on drugs and alcohol to deal with the pain. He had to have a lot of plastic surgery. Uh, they weren't able to find a doctor who was willing to attest to his insurability. Yeah. They cast him anyway. But he well, found... Well, you know why, right? Well, he was really good friends with Elizabeth Taylor, right? Elizabeth Taylor basically was like... I can't remember the exact deal she worked out, but it was because of Liz Taylor that he was hired onto this movie because he was considered uninsurable because he had addiction issues. Because this film was only made two years after that horrific car accident he was in. Liz Taylor literally pulled him out of. Yeah. Rock Hudson and Liz Taylor literally pulled him out of the car and are probably responsible for saving his life. She was so mad about the treatment he received filming this movie. As soon as she was done filming, she spit in the director's face. Yeah, not a lot of people liked him because Catherine Hepburn had issues with him too. How he treated her, apparently she thought he doted on Elizabeth Taylor which he might have because she was a huge star at the time. So I don't know. And also, like, she was also away from her partner who was very ill. So it probably just wasn't a fun experience all around. And it's also a very intense piece. So that combined with a tense offset environment probably made it not very fun. I don't know that anybody had a fun time filming this. I will say this. I want to aspire to be a friend like Liz Taylor was because she was one of the rare ones because Montgomery Clift struggled for the rest of his life with addiction. He became, his behavior apparently became more erratic as the addiction progressed. A lot of people dropped him and she never did. She stayed friends with him to the very, very end. And she said, and that was the case with so many stars that Hollywood would turn their back on, particularly stars that um, came out as gay uh, when it wasn't okay to do that. She was an advocate and an ally for so many people. And I, I always think about her as a great role model for friendship. She actually picked this to be the first project she did after she left MGM. She was like, no, I am doing this. Tennessee Williams didn't think she was the right person to play this part. I read a lot of facts, you know, behind the scenes stuff, and I I always wonder how much of that is true. And I'm not saying that, but yeah, he may have just had someone else in mind. I also heard that he really didn't have much to do with the screenplay. I mean, his name is there, but I think I think I read in an interview that he was like, no, nah, they just, they paid me and put my name on screen, but I really didn't do any of it. Who did Tennessee Williams want? It didn't say, uh, he loved Catherine Hepburn in it. And yeah. then he went on to write a part in Night of the Iguana for her, which she turned down because she didn't think she was right for. And Betty Davis got the part. He thought Elizabeth Taylor was miscast as Catherine. This is from an interview in Life from 1961. It stretched my credulity to believe that such a hip doll as our Liz wouldn't know it once in the film that she was being used for something evil. I guess that's knowing Liz Taylor in real life because she, yeah, very smart, astute woman. But I thought she played Catherine so well and there was such a beautiful vulnerability in her because she's such a powerful, strong presence that I think it's a testament to how talented she is, how well she played Catherine. And the scene, her, her and Montgomery Cliff's scenes are so nice. They are. They're just so natural. And this this was one of the three movies they did together. And I've seen two of them. I've never seen Rain Tree Country, but I've seen A Place in the Sun and Suddenly Last Summer. And it's 
true. It's just they they're so effortless together. It just is a beautiful pairing. I liked them better in this movie than in A Place in the Sun, but they did play well together in A Place well, in the Sun. A Place in the Sun, you don't I I couldn't deal with him. He was such a creep in that movie. Which I think was kind of the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but so obviously in this he's much he's a much different character and much more likable. So how did you come to this movie? Uh I honestly I do not remember. I, I feel like it was probably a late night TCM watch. I am a sucker for films that are based on plays and films that have limited characters and limited settings. I don't watch plays and I don't read plays. This is, this is making me sound very unintelligent or very unsophisticated. Uh, but I really do, for the most part, I enjoy them when they are made for the screen. When I saw, you know, that this was a Tennessee Williams play, and, and again, I don't think I've ever read any Tennessee Williams plays, but I've seen everything he's written on screen. When I knew that that's what this was, I was totally on board. I love the Southern feel, and I love how how much this deals with these you know, sort of sexual repressions of not even the time that this was made, of course then, but the fact that this takes place like 20 years before that, I think this takes place in the early 30s or something. Anything like that based in that time that deals with these, I, I don't I don't want to call them like, you know, outcast characters, but characters that have these deviant quote-unquote behaviors. I'm, I'm always interested in stuff like that. I didn't realize that it took place earlier than what it said. Mm -hmm. That makes sense now that you say it. I, I, I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, with the clothes and the way mm -hmm. everything, the thoughts and the beliefs yeah. of that time, yeah. But the clothing and stuff, it is kind of funny because when there are movies like this and they are, you know, deemed gothic and there are these extremely wealthy southern people i mean they're dressed as though they could have been you know maybe they dressed the same way in the 60s maybe they dressed the same way you know during gone with the wind it, it is odd the attire that especially katherine hepburn is in it's kind of periodless yeah but in such an old-fashioned way if that makes any sense i think some of that has to do with the fact that the south got stuck in their, not only in their clothing, but also in their sensibilities for a very long time. So it was hard to know when the times changed because, yeah, you would still have people yeah. acting and wearing the same type of stuff. And I think the other thing is the fact that this entire story revolves around, well, I might be building this up a little too much, the the procedure of the lobotomy. They talk about how it's it's extremely new. And that's the other thing that, that sort of tipped me off to saying, well, wait, this probably doesn't take place in the 50s. Yeah. You know, around the time that this movie was made, it was starting to become out of fashion uh, for that medical procedure to even be done. So that's that's another thing that I think, you know, sort of will clue viewers into the fact that this isn't a contemporary film. This was yeah. a movie that you introduced me to. I yeah. hadn't seen it and you really wanted to do it for the podcast. So yeah, I just watched it for the first time a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I became obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor when I was 13 or 14, somewhere in that age bracket. I always liked her a lot because I grew up watching a lot of old movies with my grandma and she always talked about Liz Taylor and her violet eyes, which she didn't have violet eyes, but that's a whole other thing. So I always loved Liz Taylor and then I guess, yeah, probably 13 or 14, I read her one of her biographies and just probably shouldn't have read it as a teenager because it was quite mature, had a lot of mature subject matter. I kind of fell in love with Liz Taylor, the person, 
through reading about her, reading about her life. And that's where I found this movie um, because in, I can't remember which um, biography it was of her. I needed to find it. And if I do, I'll link it in the details with this episode. They talk extensively about her relationship with Montgomery Clift and how much she loved him and how much he loved her and what great friends they were. And they talked about this movie a lot. Growing up, it was harder to come by because we didn't have Netflix or anything like that at when I was that age. So I don't know if I found it at the library blockbuster. I don't remember where I found it, but I found it. I rented it. Didn't fully get it because I was a teenager and just didn't understand a lot of it because I wasn't exposed to a lot of the nuance that was available that was that was happening in this movie or that helped you understand this movie, I guess is the better way to say it. But yeah, but loved it because it was just so dark and gritty. And while I didn't I wasn't like, oh my God, this is my favorite movie. I love it so much. It was more like there was something about it that I couldn't deny. So it wasn't that I loved it and enjoyed it, but it was, there was something in it that I recognized and understood. And then as I got older and watched it again as an adult, cause it was years later that I watched it. And then recently it, when I watched it for the podcast, when I watched it just a couple of months ago, the first time in like 10 years, probably I, I took so much away from it that I didn't take from the last time. It's a very powerful, movie. I think part of that is the way that it's written. I mean, of course, the actresses, but the fact that it's basically just kind of like four long scenes. It's just these giant monologues. Right. And and had I done any research and looked into the play at all, I would know the answer to this, but I would almost guarantee you that none of this early stuff is in that play. Like, I, I guarantee you it's just he shows up to meet, let's call her Elizabeth Taylor, and I'll bet that's how the play starts. When we were sitting talking about doing this movie, we were like, oh my god, it's going to take so long to talk about all of this. And really and truly, like, a lot happens, but it's very few scenes. These scenes are just incredibly long. Which was very difficult for Montgomery Cliff. He found it very exhausting, which I can understand. Yeah, he had to film very small takes, and it, oh, the director could not stand it and constantly was asking the producer to fire him. This movie is based on the one-act play by Tennessee Williams. It was originally paired with another one-act play, Something Unspoken, as part of the 1958 Broadway double bill titled Garden District. And Gore Vidal wrote the screenplay for this. Tennessee Williams is also given credit, but he said that he had nothing to do with it. I don't know if they just put his name on there to, like, try to, you know, because Cat on a Hot Tin Roof had like been... Like Yeah, such a big hit that people would be like oh Tennessee Williams yeah and this movie um as we get into it I mean it definitely discusses LGBTQ plus issues at a time when you could not talk about that oh Gore Vidal said something basically he was able to get by with so much queer culture or talking about LGBTQ plus issues because he was able to spin it to a priest, as he quoted one of the dumb ones, why America needed this lesson on morality. Because viewed for a very, from a very simplistic moralistic lens, it looks like it's viewing gay as bad. But there's so much more happening. And I think that's what Gore Vidal and Tennessee Williams and other artists that were involved understood. But then the American public got the message that I guess Hollywood and the censors wanted them to get but they got away with a lot because this definitely pushed boundaries Gore Vidal attempted to construct a narrative as a small number of very long scenes that echoed the structure of the play 
Mm-hmm. I haven't read the play, have you? I've never read the play, but I would be so interested to because that would be something I would be interested in producing myself. That would be really interesting, especially since it's a one act and they turned it into an almost two hour movie. This movie runs an hour and 54 minutes. So speaking of that, we start off the movie with a surgery. Yes. We are in an institution. Yes. And the first characters that we meet are the head of Lions View State Hospital, I think it's called. But it's basically like a place for the insane. It's um, an asylum, if you will. Well, I guess the very, very first thing is we see a woman being taken from the like women's day room there and she has this yeah. doll. And then the next time we see her, she's being wheeled into surgery and they're performing a lobotomy on her in this less than adequate room that we yeah. learn was at one time a library and then before that like a sugar storehouse or something along the those lines it was a building that had served many purposes yeah and like the lights flicker during the surgery the railing breaks yeah the doctor is not happy at the end of it he says you have just seen a very delicate procedure performed in some of the most primitive circumstances so yeah when you're having your brain operated on you don't really want the room you're in to be falling apart that is a crazy opening. Just the fact that this place is falling apart the way it is. The fact that the railing up above, like pieces of wood are coming off and splinters are falling down. And it made me wonder. So right after this, with the head of the hospital or whoever the guy is, he goes to Montgomery Clift. He's like, hey... Listen, I know this place is a mess, but this super wealthy woman wants our help. And my thought was like, did he do this on purpose? Like, did he make this place in such horrible disrepair so Montgomery Clift really has no choice but to do this? Just to save this hospital? Huh. I mean, I'm not saying he's sabotaging, like, cut the lights and stuff, but I'm sure there's another place that Montgomery Clift could have done this procedure. Yeah. Yeah, what, what are they doing? It seems like there might have been a better way. Also, I just realized, picturing that scene in my head, that all Mm -hmm. those people up on that balcony, that's like open air, and none of them are in any sort of like scrubs or masks or sanitary attire or anything so all of their germs and stuff (laughs) are just floating around in that operating room yeah i and again this is nothing i've ever experienced i've never been in some sort of operating theater i've only seen them on tv and movies but you would assume there would at least at least even in the 30s be some sort something other than a wooden railing yeah i mean i know that kramer dropped uh what did he drop in that Seinfeld episode a junior mint inside of somebody when they were in an operating theater you know I'm sure they at least had plexiglass up to a certain height there but yeah this seems wildly unsanitary even for these times yeah the first two doctors that we meet are Dr. Kukorit Kukro uh, I can't say it Kukowitz or Kukrowitz 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 it means sugar in Polish, apparently. Because later on, Catherine Hepburn calls him Dr. Sugar. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Mm-hmm. But so we meet Dr. Kukorich. So we meet Dr. Kukorich. I can't say it. Montgomery Cliff. 
we meet Montgomery Cliff and yeah. then Dr. Hockstatter, who is the head of the asylum and now what is being deemed as the state's first like psychosurgery center where they do lobotomies. He's presenting a letter to Dr. Kukoritz. What is yeah, his first name? Do they even say it? Because I just have it. It's listed on the cast list as Dr. Kukukrowicz. I'm pretty sure they say it. For some reason, I want to say Phil, but I don't know if that's right. I don't know. But anyway. Yeah. So it's ob- they make it very apparent in that first scene where the lobotomy is being performed that the surgery center is, again, very primitive. They need money. And then the next scene is Dr. Hockstatter talking about Miss Venable, who is a disgustingly rich widow. All of a sudden, she's like, I have this little favor that I need to ask of the, of the doctor that's performing all the surgeries there. Can he come over to my place today? Also, P.S., there's probably a lot, a lot of, of money. money. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of money for possibly a building. So, you know, no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's at your leisure, but money, 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 money. But today at 4.30. Today at 4.30. Yeah, so you know he planned all this out. He was like, okay, Violet, come on. We will do this. I'll plan it out this day. Don't worry. I'll figure it out. Montgomery Cliff might not be 100% on board. And is this the first time they've ever discussed it, I guess? Because he seems thrown like, oh, I, uh, all right, I guess I better go do this now. It's odd that he wouldn't bring it up to him earlier. Maybe too, Violet, because she is very much a person that's used to having everything done her way maybe she just sent the letter like the day before or Mm. something and they just got it but still i don't know that just seems like how do you know he's gonna show up how do you know the letter got there in time right yeah and and the other thing is i mean you know i hate to poke holes in movies like we're doing right now but i don't know it's kind of fun as well this seems like stuff that you could have answered i mean you could have spent a little more time with this and cut out some of that stuff later on uh as i was saying about her being moved from one institution to another one you don't need that and if this had a modern rewrite or something i think they'd probably say well why can't she just be in one place we we don't need this they could they could meet you know at at one institution we don't have to have them meet somewhere else and there's nuns and you know she could put a cigarette out on herself at one place. It just seems odd that they didn't develop the Clift character a little more. I feel like they probably could have done that and that they spent time elsewhere later on. I haven't read the short play, so I don't know um, the source material. It feels like, so he is important, but he's not important. He's only important that he is the one that is pulling this story together Mm-hmm. But, like, about him as a person isn't important. Which, yeah, it might have been interesting to hear a little bit more about him because we don't know how long he's been a doctor or anything like that. We just know that he is, I guess, like, one of the foremost people in lobotomies, and that's about it. I, I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. He really is our surrogate as an audience. You know, he's trying to figure out what's going on. We're trying to figure out what's going on. He's basically just there for the other, quote-unquote, more important characters to talk to. Yeah. Of course he goes. He's also oh, curious. Can I back? I'm so sorry. I just have to add this. Okay. When he is performing the lobotomy and he's putting all the tools into the basin of water, that is the least bloodiest brain surgery ever. Yeah, I was kind of expecting them to like drop bits of her brain in there. And or at least a little drip, drip, oh, at least a little dripping of blood 
a trickle, a trickle, a trickle, if you will, but literally that water runs clear. So either this woman had no blood in her skull or me thinks that this wasn't an actual surgery. And I just can't get over the fact that they didn't actually perform surgery. I can't believe that Montgomery Clift didn't go method and actually perform a lobotomy. You get hired for an acting job and you get a free lobotomy. Yeah. I mean, she was just an extra. Yeah, she didn't even have a line. She didn't. She just had a doll. Rude. The doll probably got higher billing than she did. So yeah, so Dr. Kukrowicz goes to Miss Venable's home. And this is um, the stately manor of Miss Violet Venable, who is a very, very wealthy widow. He walks in. What is her name? Fox Hill? Is that the- Oh, Fox Hill is the secretary. Yeah, and she's like, you're 23 seconds early. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, at your leisure, no big deal. But also, I am counting the seconds. Yeah, she has him sit down. And and then as he sits down, we start hearing this disembodied voice. And you can't quite tell what it's saying. And then as the elevator starts coming into focus, we can hear what Violet Venable is saying. Great name, by the way. She could be a Marvel character with that name. But it's like she just starts talking even though nobody can really hear her because that's what wealthy uh, widows do. Well, that's why she asked him to be there at 4.30 so she could start the monologue as she descended. Yeah. Because she's talking about Sebastian always said blah, 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 blah. I can't remember exactly what it is. She talks about Sebastian a lot and it's just honestly too much to think that I could keep up with every Sebastian story and everything Sebastian said. It feels a little bit like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha because she literally does not stop talking about Sebastian. She's a wonderfully interesting and just, you know, tragic character. And that's that's the thing, you know, that's that's the thing about Tennessee Williams and his plays. There are all these wonderfully tragic, mostly female characters in his plays. And and I really, I appreciate his work. Again, I'm, I'm talking like I read his plays, but I'm just talking about the yeah. films. I appreciate his work more than somebody like, let's say, Arthur Miller, whose plays all have to do with, you know, middle-aged men who, you know, complain that they haven't made enough money in their yeah. life or something like That's all those plays are and I really enjoy all of his work just for how female-centric they are. This is one of my favorite entrances in a film ever because it's so amazing, but it's so ominous. And I think that has to do with Catherine Hepburn because any other actor would just be like this woman descending in her birdcage-like elevator. She brings so much to the role and has this foreboding sense about her because everything's so calculated with her. And so everything that Catherine Hepburn does is a choice to kind of embody that foreboding nature as she's descending and she's talking about Sebastian Sebastian said this and that she's charming you can't take your eyes off her but also something's a little scary it's a little off Yes, it is. And real quick, on a side note, the doctor's first name is John. It's always John. I just looked it up. It is not Phil. I wonder. (laughs) Those are different names. (laughs) Uh, We can't call him Uncle Phil. Everything she does is to impress. And yes, they quote Sebastian so much. I wrote down a few things that Catherine says about Sebastian or things that Sebastian said later on. So much. So much. Like, well, and, and you... that's what he's like the biggest character in the whole movie, but he's not ever, you don't ever see his face. You only see him in memory, but he is literally the biggest force in this whole film. You get the sense that she worships him. Oh yeah. Mildly obsessed. 
I don't even know if mildly. No, no. But in the beginning, she's trying to play it off casual, as casual as she can be. They said something about, are you in mourning? And she goes, yes, but I'm wearing white, my son's favorite color. And then Fox Hill is kind of asking her like, oh, should you be going out? Be careful. It's a little hot. Or I don't know. She's just saying something. And she's like, they fuss over me because I had a teeny tiny convulsion last year. A t- like the teeniest, tiniest convulsion of the teeniest, tiniest vessel or something like that. <laughs> like to worry about. And so she takes him out into Sebastian's garden, which I have no idea how big this house is or where this house is. It's got an atrium, basically. I guess maybe that's not the right word, but this garden is gigantic. Yeah, she says something about like the oldest. It has some of the oldest plants and most exotic plants from all over the world. I love in this scene when she's showing him this this beautiful lush garden of Sebastian's. That again is kind of like this living embodiment of him she's focusing on the lady who is the venus flytrap that's literally named and has to be kept in this little tiny like personal hotbox greenhouse situation and be hand fed these special flies that get brought in from so they get flown in from somewhere she said that fox hill delights in feeding the flies to lady and so and she literally gives a box of flies to fox hill and she's like giddy about getting to like feed these flies she picks them up with tweezers and like feeds them to the venus flytrap so thought that was interesting considering some of the subject matter in this they like to they they like to talk about the eating of things and the predator versus prey and such there's a part later on when they've given Catherine a, a sedative and as she's slowly like going to sleep she's talking about how sebastian always talked about people as if they were food on a menu that oh that one was delicious or that one is appetizing or that one's not appetizing Mm -hmm. and she has this whole long bit where she's talking about how Sebastian views people as food and that comes in a lot like the consumption of just consumption I guess yeah comes in a lot but in this scene where Dr. Cooper Oh, goodness. John. Memory Cliff. Okay, yeah. In this scene where John is talking to Mrs. Venable and getting to know her and kind of starting to understand the situation and she's talking about her niece that has dementia precox, which I don't know what that means, but she basically goes, it means she's mad as a hatter. So you start to get kind of a, a... broader understanding of why she wants to meet with the doctor and how exactly he's going to get this funding. She has this amazing monologue talking about how Sebastian saw the face of God in the Galapagos Islands or the Incantadas. And we will just refer to this from now on as the Incantadas monologue because it is, I don't know, I think this is one of my favorite things ever. The first time I watched it, it really upset me. Yeah, it's really, really disturbing, but just, she's so good. And I I watched this with my husband and my roommate, both of which it's like, they don't mind a classic film, but both of them could not take their eyes off the screen. We were all just like laser focused in on Catherine Hepburn, talking about the sea turtles and the flesh-eating birds on the Incantatas and how Sebastian wouldn't come down from the, what's the thing called? The thing on the boat? where The crow's nest. He wouldn't come down from the crow's until well after dark watching with the oh the other the thing that I can't spyglass the spyglass yes so good she's so good in that she is she's never present like she's never in the moment she's you know I, I talked about how Clift is just there for people to talk to she never seems to be talking to him she is in her own world she's staring off into space 
and I loved her performance in this film. She might even have this conversation if he wasn't there. Yeah, I'm sure she's had it many times before. But it also a lot of times feels like she's talking to Sebastian, too, even though he's not there. It's just, oh, everything about her is so creepy. Yeah, I, I really feel like they lean certainly a little too much into it at the very, very end because you get the idea that she sees him as Sebastian or 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 at times does. Um, I Not that I didn't need it at the end, not that I didn't appreciate it at the end, um, but I kind of saw that coming a mile away. You know, they talk about Sebastian and how charming he was and stuff, but nothing of, that they say about him makes me want to meet him. He, no, because they, it's like everyone, as you meet them throughout this film, is talking about how wonderful Sebastian was and how, always the life of the party and bring around a f- really fun people and always having great parties and something witty to say. And there's just something about the way that Violet describes him that makes him seem so disturbing in the beginning. And just how she can't stop talking about him. Everything relates back to something that Sebastian said. I love how her son... (laughs) Like, her son wrote one poem a year. I thought that was fantastic. Just when she's talking to him about her son and he's asking her questions, like, what did he do? And she, I think she says, like, well, his lifestyle was his work. And I was like, wait, what does that mean? And she talks about the fact that he was a poet, but he only wrote one poem a year. And even Montgomery Cliff goes, one a year. <laughs> but she doesn't, she doesn't see that that's weird. She doesn't even pay attention to the fact that he doesn't quite understand it. She's just, like I said, off. Off in her own world and running with this. I don't know. It's what the rich do, I guess. Well, and she also talks about how basically she says they were a couple. It was Violet and Sebastian. And Sebastian. Sebastian and Violet. And it's like, um, that's real creepy. Oh, who was saying, there was, um, they were saying it was a, like a slight reference to, oh, a Greek play. I can't think of what it was. Not, not Euripides. Not Oedipus. Maybe Oedipus. Because it, it was just, it got a little uncomfortable, the mother-son relationship. But we learn later on more, more of the inner work of that relationship but at this point all we know is violet wants the the doctor dr john that we can't say his last name because i can't to go meet her niece Catherine, who is violent and all of these things after she went on holiday with sebastian the vacation where he died and afterwards she lost her mind and now she has to be institutionalized and she wants the doctor to perform a lobotomy on Catherine to make her peaceful the doctor's like i understand but you need to know this is experimental at best and we don't know the long-term things like the long-term results or the effects of it and she's like but it does make them peaceful they quiet down and they, they don't talk a lot and they're peaceful and he's like well yes and she goes and that was basically good enough for her and so you you understand the price of getting funding for this hospital is the doctor needs to perform the surgery it is not a gift it is a transaction yeah it, well she's holding it over their head going i'll give you this dangling this piece of cheese in front of you if you will lobotomize my niece. We also meet Catherine's mom and brother. Violet, apparently in a moment of charity that she sounds so disgusted about. um, Oh, she has, I wrote it down. She goes, because we meet, um, oh, is it George? George and Grace. Yeah, George and Grace. Um, Their last name is Holly. So Mrs. Holly and George, and they're in Sebastian's like personal study or his room going through his things, like going through his clothes, and she's like, WTF, why are you in here and they're like oh yeah you said that George could have all of Sebastian's clothes since they're just sitting here and not doing anyone any good and he's going to college and he needs clothes but you get the sense that they take what 
whatever they can get and then they just kind of hang around until Violet has something else to give them. Well, when she walks in, the mom is going through Sebastian's papers and she's reading a letter. She's like, oh, uh, this letter just must have found its way into my hand before you walked in. When you find me. She's like, it's obviously your fault because she asks them why they're there and they tell her that they're there to get the clothes and she goes, ah, yes, I stand accused of generosity. And then she also tells Fox Hill to keep an eye on them because they might steal the silver. Because she makes a point of telling George who's holding something, I think it's a cigarette holder, some some little tchotchke, and is like, everything in this room has been itemized and inventoried. So we're going to know if anything goes missing. And he's like, oh, Auntie Vi, how could you think I'd steal anything? I would never steal from you, Auntie Vi. I just, I cannot stand the Hollies. But we find out that, the, like you said, this is Catherine's mother and brother. These are barely characters mm-hmm. in this. Um, I'm not saying that they're 100% unnecessary. I do enjoy the fact that they're rifling through this guy's stuff because I guess she said that he could have his clothes. They're just kind of like these weird background players. I mean, they're practically extras, especially near the end of this. They're just there. And I don't, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be there, but they're, they're so unimportant. I mean, this could have been a three character play, which it probably was. And I would have been fine with a three character film. And then, then they find a picture of Catherine in some of Sebastian's things and Violet it's like, why would he have that? Why would that be there? And they're like, oh, look, this is from this ball. Was it the Mardi Gras ball? The Mardi Gras ball. And ball. Like, look how beautiful she is. And they're like, oh, yes, but that night it, it wasn't so happy, was it? And when I say they, I mean, that's what Mrs. Holly is saying. Because she's kind of, I don't want to speak ill of anyone, but she's a little... She's a fictional character. You can speak ill of her. She's a little bit of a dim-witted. I don't know if she's just playing dumb to get her way or to be agreeable but she's like oh yes that night wasn't so happy and when you find out what happened you're like no shit so we meet them and then it's five o'clock which is when sebastian and violet would share a daiquiri which i'm just like can we observe daiquiri at five o'clock because that sounds great is this what we call daiquiri hour yeah there's like beer o'clock and daiquiri hour we observe daiquiri hour she invites the doctor to have a daiquiri with her when Fox Hill brings her medication and her daiquiri. And of course he declines, but she keeps mentioning over and over how much the doctor reminds her of Sebastian. She says it over and over. And she's like, oh, sit in his chair. And he's like, oh, oh, I won. I'm so sorry. And she's like, no, no, sit in his gesture chair that's 500 years old and say something funny to keep me from crying. And he's like, oh, I don't think I'd make a very good court gesture because I get concerned when people stop crying. I can go off on tangents because I just, love so many little things about this movie and that's the thing there are so many moments it's hard to keep track of them all and we can't talk about all of them or this would be like a five hour episode for as little scenes as there are there's so much to talk about there are so many moments Mm-hmm. Like this whole scene, this introductory scene of, of Violet and the Doctor is so good. And I love watching Catherine Hepburn and Montgomery Cliff and like this dance, if you will. And she's in the lead because he's just there to be done to completely. And she is driving this car. He is kind of a master class in, like you said, being done to. Like with the yes. Meisner technique, it's, it's a give and take in scenes. You change, you know, who's doing and who's being done to. His whole part pretty much in this movie is being done to. Yeah. And he's really good at it. Because whenever the focus comes back to him, he very quickly turns it to the person, like starts asking questions. Uh, again, just to kind of 
kind of like flip the flip the focus. Yeah. But uh, it reminds me of what people say in ballroom dancing, how the man is supposed to be the frame for the woman, you know, regardless of who who's what gender or whatever. To me, that's what I think of him as. He's he's framing her for this powerhouse performance. And as I watch it more as I get older, I appreciate him so much more because in the beginning, obviously you're just watching Catherine Hepburn, but then just the nuance and the subtlety of what he's doing is so nice. It's so nice to watch. Let's talk about Catherine Hepburn for a moment. Let's. She received a record of four Academy Awards for lead acting performances plus eight other nominations. Uh, She was named by the American Film Institute as the greatest female star of the classic Hollywood cinema. She was known for her fierce, independent, spirited personality and for pushing the boundaries for women. It had been two years since she had done a movie when she did Suddenly Last Summer. The movie was shot in London and it was a completely miserable experience for her. Her and the director clashed. She was away from Spencer. Like I I said before, she was away from Spencer Tracy, who was her partner, um, and he was really ill. But this movie did give her her eighth nomination. Yeah, and like I said earlier, Tennessee Williams really liked her performance. Kate is a playwright's dream actress. She makes dialogue sound better than it is by a matchless beauty and clarity of diction. Her voice to me is so iconic. I can always pick out Catherine Hepburn. Or when someone's trying to do a Hepburn, she just, I don't know, she just stood apart from the rest. She was completely individualistic, but everything was just so spot on. I have yet to see something that Catherine Hepburn has done that I did not like. It was really interesting because, of course, she had this amazing career when she was younger. But then as she got older, she started doing a lot of stage plays and wanted the challenge of doing Shakespeare. So she she would play like all different Shakespeare plays and wanted to really tackle like classic theater. And then she just kept constantly like reinventing herself, you know, at a time when most actresses were, if you were 30, then you were like done. She kept going. She kept going and finding new ways to be relevant and get parts. Yeah, and in the beginning I said that Elizabeth Taylor was the big star on this and she was definitely a big star. That There's no way around it. But I think maybe to clarify what I meant was it was that, that thing of how people expect older starlets to kind of go into their twilight and not really do anything anymore because they're old and but she didn't do that she she kind of reminded me of Betty Davis where she just constantly kept reinventing herself and finding new ways to do what she wanted and like you said stay relevant she has a great quote here because she worked well into her 80s well late 80s she said about death and I love this I have no fear of death must be wonderful like a long sleep and she did pass away in 2003 June 29th 2003 a month after her 96th birthday birthday at her home in Connecticut. Um, She died from cardiac arrest. For her extensive theater work, they dimmed the lights of Broadway on the evening of July 1st, 2003. So it's like, that's a gigantic honor there. And her last role was for the television movie One Christmas in 1994, which she received a Screen Actors Guild Award nomination for. She was 87. Wow. So Katherine Hepburn had this amazing career. So that that was a nice little time to talk about Katherine Hepburn. By this point in the film, we're about 35, 34 to 35 minutes in. Now we're going to meet Catherine Holly in Suddenly Last Summer. Dr. John goes to visit her at St. Mary's 
I think yeah. it's, it's like a Catholic place that she's being held at because there's nuns right, and, and stuff. Yes, yeah, so it's a, it's a religious organization, but she is being kicked out because she accused a gardener of rape. What what she's how um, Catherine Hepburn and this is again there's so much gaslighting in this film. So what she what she tells the doctor is that she accused an elderly gardener of trying to make love to her, which ugh, that phrasing is so gross. But, and she spoke obscenity to him oh yes she spoke obscenities to him because it was her who actually came on to him and not the other way around she is being kicked out of saint mary's has to be moved but will he please go meet with her before then to see if she is a candidate because he won't agree right out to do the surgery he's like no i need to speak with her and see if see if she really needs this because i don't know what dementia precox is well, he tells her that that's not really a diagnosis, that that could be a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, exactly. So Dr. John just heads on down to St. Mary's, and he's in a library. It must be some kind of study slash library within the facility. The first thing that Catherine goes for is this pack of cigarettes that are on the table. Yeah, she's led into this area uh, by one of the nuns. I'm guessing it was probably the head nun. What are they called? Like Mother Superior. She's it, got it, one of those hats that looks like she's going to fly away. She has the flying nun hat. I'm sorry if you're Catholic. I don't mean to be disrespectful. I just know nothing about your ish. Yeah. So she has the flying nun hat on. Catherine, or not Catherine. Well, she is Catherine, but Elizabeth Taylor as Catherine is like, she is so gorgeous. But I, what I love about, uh, about Elizabeth Taylor is that she looks like a real woman. She has a little bit of a belly. She's a little kind of round and soft. I just thought, I, I loved her look in this film. And so when she comes in, she has on this little dress and her hair, it's not great, but she still looks amazing. But I know she's supposed to just be a mess. I don't know that Liz Taylor could ever fully be a mess or I don't know that Hollywood could fully go there. But yeah, like you said, she went straight for the cigarettes because she gets out of her chair and she's like, Catherine, the, the nun says. And she's like, oh, I'm not being violent, sister. I'm just looking at the books. And then she like dashes like a mad woman. <laughs> no pun intended, for the cigarettes and his smoking. And she's like, Catherine, what are you doing? And she goes, nothing, sister. I'm just having a cigarette. Catherine, you know we don't smoke. To which I ask, sister, why are there cigarettes in this library slash study slash office, whatever the hell it is? Why are there cigarettes if no one smokes? Riddle me that. But she makes Catherine give her the cigarette and she gets very agitated and she tries to like hand it to her and she's like, oh, you well, burned me deliberately. Well, okay, I feel like you bypassed that scene because what the reason that she's getting so frantic is because, so, okay, she, she just wants a cigarette. And as we get to know Catherine, we understand why that cigarette is so important to her because it's like her one little bit of freedom. And then she's not even allowed it and the nun's like, give me the cigarette, give me the cigarette. And she kind of, like Laura says, she loses control. I don't know. It was the weirdest handoff. And she just kind of like puts the cigarette out really half-heartedly in the, in the nun's hand. And then the nun's like, you deliberately burned, you little hussy. I know she doesn't say that. They're just but. looking for anything to point to her being bad. 
being insane. Yeah, exactly. It's like anything to back up that diagnosis. All the while, Montgomery Cliff is watching this whole thing unfold. He's like behind a bookshelf, just like lurking. I don't know. He walks in and he's, and the, the nun's like, you see doctor, she deliberately burned me. He's so de-escalating. Like this is, this is the doctor of, of the mind. He's like, you know, go take care of your hand. She's like, but I can't leave you alone. She's violent. He's like, I got it. I'm cool. Cause I think he pretty much sees right away. She's not violent, that she's a young woman who's been traumatized. I don't know if he can see that right away, but I think he can understand within those first few moments of seeing the interaction that she's not trying to hurt anyone. And they have this talk about, oh, did you really assault the gardener? And she's like, well, of course, because isn't that what insane women do? And is just, it's like, clearly she's not stark raving mad or anything like that. No, she's she's really bright and she's really sharp. And he keeps asking her, like, did you do it? Well, that's what they said, so I must have. Like, she's so pissed. Yeah. Because I think she's been told time and time again and she's never gotten a voice. No one's ever believed her. And so when this doctor starts talking to her, she's like, oh, well, this is going to go the same way that it always goes. And so she's just feeding into it. And he's like, no, 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 but did you really do it? As he keeps talking to her, she's starts actually having a conversation with him instead of just being kind of I don't know if petulance the right word but she contrary just like you said not really taking it too seriously because like again she knows how this goes yeah she knows no matter what she says she's not going to be believed but she hasn't been believed he keeps asking her questions he knows based on the earlier conversation that something happened the night of the Mardi Gras ball ball why is that so hard for me to say the Mardi the Mardi Gras ball. Mardi Gras, the Mardi Gras ball. Yeah. So he asks her about that and she says that's the night that her life began and ended. We find out that she had a little tryst with a married man that night. No, it wasn't a tryst. She was raped. Oh, is that... Okay. Because she got, she didn't know him. And he just drove her out somewhere. She didn't realize what was going to go down until they got out there. And then they started walking. Yeah, because, no, she got straight up raped. I didn't realize that. That's how I read it. I read it as she was raped because she didn't know him. Right, but she said she got out of the car. So I was curious why she would get out of the car. Well, if you're with a man and he starts behaving oddly, what would you do? I guess that's true. And, you know, of course nobody would believe that she got raped. So, plus they, you know, couldn't spell that out. Uh. Well, and back then, well, I mean, now too, it's like it's so hard to to accuse anyone of rape because they don't think it's rape. It's like a guy's like, oh, well, she's pretty and in the car with me. Obviously, she wants to have sex. Yeah. And that's how I took it was, oh, well, she accepted a car ride from me. So that obviously meant she wants she wants to have sex with me. So they go out to the dueling oaks or whatever it's called. She's like, we're walking in the grass towards the oaks. And, you know, and she kind of glosses over what happens. He's like, well, we better be done with it because I'm married and my wife's pregnant. So what I took that as is that was another man that just took what he wanted and assumed she wanted it. And then is like, oh, yeah, but I don't I don't know what you thought from that. But this obviously can't happen. And then she says that she goes back to the ball because she thought she was going to get this fur coat that she borrowed from her aunt. She thought she was going to go pick it back up. But she said she got there and then she attacked the man. When everyone talks about what happened at the Mardi Gras ball, that's what it is, that she went in and attacked this man with her hands and her fist and just started 
pummeling him. Not that she was raped, but that she went back and attacked her rapist. Because to me, when she says, that's the night my life began began and ended, it's like, obviously, that's where her trauma started. But also, that's the first time she wasn't believed. That's true. Because she told people and no one believed her. And that's where it started happening. Maybe we don't find this out till the end, but she starts referring to herself in the third person. Like, she got up today. She... No, no, she kind of does that because the shadows are dancing on the wall and she's like, do you want me to look at pictures and tell you what I think they mean? And he goes, what do you think that shadow is? And she's like, a girl. And she's trying to make you feel sorry for her and she hopes it's working. She said that Sebastian took her home. Then he asked her to go with him that summer because his mother wasn't well. She gets to go to all these places she's never been before. It's wonderful and she sees great places. And then she's at the window and she starts talking about the music. That music. And she's just oh, like... Cabeza de, de Lobo. Yeah, and she's like just rubbing her forehead. Like she's trying to rub it out. She just kind of starts screaming. And he's asking... screaming help. Yeah. He, he's asking her, what happened? What happened? She's like, I don't remember. I don't remember. He's hit a nerve. Mm-hmm. And he knows that this is probably where he needs to keep investigating. But he also knows that she can't stay there. He doesn't think that she's a candidate for surgery. He's like, obviously she's emotionally disturbed. You know, she's with it. So they make an agreement that when she's moved to Lion's View, that she can wear her own clothes. Yeah, okay, yeah, I just want to address this because she's like, may I wear a pretty dress? And I'm just like, this poor girl just wants to do her makeup and feel human again. But also she's like, I know you can't tell it right now, but I really can be quite pretty. And I'm like, you're supposed to be ugly? And then I wrote, everyone else in this movie is crazy. (laughs) Because it's like, even at her most disheveled, like her hair not perfectly done and like split down the middle or whatever, she's still just stunning and gorgeous. But I love it too, because to me, it was like a more natural, realistic Liz Taylor just because she wasn't like perfectly done I guess I don't know I just love that that first scene with her the way she looks but yeah so she's gonna get transferred to Lionsview mm-hmm. is that what it's called he in the next scene because there's a very short little scene between him and the head of the hospital or the head of the asylum Dr. Hockstatter and he's like she I don't want her feeling like a patient she's gonna go stay in the nurses area and she's gonna get to wear her own clothes and smoke cigarettes and she's not good it's very important that she's not treated like a patient He also says, we are getting a million dollars from Violet Venable. Look at that empty lot across the street. That's where we are building our new hospital. Isn't life great? Yeah, because she's, I guess she's already promised the money because she thinks this lobotomy is happening. So he goes to check on her. Yeah, because he's still, he's still not sold. And the he nurse. what everyone wants him to do, but he's still not sold. And the nurse says, oh, she has a dress from Paris. She has beautiful clothes. The head of the place just kind of looks at the nurse and the nurse shuts up real fast. <laughs> the nurse gets it. It's like, no wonder she went crazy. She couldn't wear her haute couture. Yeah. So he goes into her room to see her and, you know, she just had her hair done and she's in this really beautiful dress and 
she looks fantastic and she has her cigarettes and she's basically like a new person now. She is Liz Taylor. And her mother and her brother come to see her. Oh yeah, and the brother is in one of Sebastian's suits. I have the white silk one? Yeah, and she is triggered. She's also not like super happy to see them. She's su- she's happy to see her mom, but then she's like, George. They basically are like, oh doctor, can you leave? We need to talk about a teensy tiny little family matter. And he's like, just some business, just some papers we need to sign. We find out like George. that what it is, is that cousin Sebastian left a will and is going to give him $50,000 each. But... but- but Mama has to sign papers to have her committed for all eternity. She has to stay committed. Well, no, not just committed for all eternity. Just until after she has the little operation. Oh, that's right. And Catherine whirls and she's like, Como say what? Yeah. Excuse, je m'excuse, what? And she's like, oh, honey, it's just the little operation to make you peaceful or something. And she's like, Mom. The only operations they do at this place are lobotomies. Do you know what? I'm going to do the whole thing. Do you know what a lobotomy is? They operate on the brain, mama. They bore holes into the skull and operate on the brain. And then the mom is like, oh, honey, please don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, like, you're the one having it done, but I don't want to hear about it. It's that cognitive dissonance. And so Catherine starts losing her shit because she's like, why is no one talking to this woman? Why does she know? Why are you doing this to me? And so she's losing her mind. And George is like, Kathy, which I hate. She's not Kathy. She's Catherine. But he's like, Kathy, what's the big deal? They say it doesn't hurt at all. Like, you are such a man. And you then are such a man. Yeah. I want you to go outside and go on the street and get hit by a bus. It's odd because sometimes I feel like, okay, well, they're there just so we understand rich people are pretty terrible, right? But then it's one of those things where we have to feel for Elizabeth Taylor through this entire film and and almost feel like she is wildly different than all of these relatives of hers. And I don't know how true that is. The strange thing about her is we don't get much in the way of her as a character because we're introduced to her as crazy, crazy. That's what she is through the entire film until the end when it's just like, hey, guess what? She's totally fine now. But I don't I don't know what she really was before this, before these events. That's true. I hadn't really thought about it much because she never talks about herself. She only talks about Sebastian and yeah. the whole thing is just trying to figure out what happened. So yeah, we don't learn much about her other than what happened the night of the Mardi Gras ball. Yeah, I, what was she like before that? I don't yeah. know. I mean, in those flashbacks, she seems perfectly nice I mean, she seems you know she doesn't seem like a wealthy snob i guess saying again it's almost like i'm i'm talking about a film based on a very very small play a film that runs almost two hours i'm like i need more about these characters and i really don't like that's not what i'm trying to say here because i think that what her character is and the purpose she serves is crucial to this play of course it's it's what everything revolves around but just the fact that you're introducing these other other characters and other relatives makes me wonder about her past and I probably shouldn't be doing that when I watch this movie. Maybe if the ending wasn't quite as abrupt as it was or something where, where they just kind of, you know, not to jump to the ending, but when they turn around and she's like, hey, I'm okay. 
I'm okay now. Like, I'm all good now. And they just walk away. And I'm like, so are they dating? Like, I don't I don't know where we're going with this at this point. Maybe if it wasn't that abrupt an ending or, or ended in a slightly different fashion, I wouldn't have been so bothered by it. And then the mom goes, we'll have so many opportunities for George with that $100,000 if you yeah, just have even- your brain operated on. It's like, as long as you just have this, like, piece of your brain cut out, it's like, your brother's gonna do so well. Yeah. Don't you want George to do well in school? Like, $100,000. Like, she's not gonna, so it's $50,000 for each kid. She's not gonna get any of it. No. George is gonna get all of it. So I'm just like, if I was her, get. Yeah. And that's what she does. She, she, Catherine gets got. And she runs out of her room, goes in through a door, because she's just trying to escape. She's just trying to get away. And she ends up going into the upper level of what they call the drum, which is kind of like the little, like Laura called the like the little day area. But they have two, of course, they have a men's one and a women's one. Well, Catherine ends up on the upper level of the men's drum. And, and causes a riot. Yeah, because these guys are like, ooh, a lady, which I, I'm like, this is such, like this scene is so creepy in a couple ways, just because it's just creepy, just the idea of it. But then it's like, also probably how she feels too. She's just, just bait. She's just a piece of meat. Because as soon as she goes in, all of these men start going crazy and they're trying to climb up the railing and grab her and one does. And then the doctor comes in and saves her. Thank God. Or did he come? No, he doesn't save her. The orderlies do. She's gonna jump. No, that's later. Is that later? That's later. I thought she was gonna jump into the thing. Oh, that is later. That's my later. bad, my bad. I've seen this movie. But yeah, so this this scene to me was very representative of how Catherine feels. Yeah. And they set an alarm off because there's a riot going on. Then when she gets out of the room, her mom comes running out. She's like, what's wrong? Is there a fire? She's so stupid. And so he escorts them out. Somebody says that Catherine is insane. And he has this line, which I think is, it's really wonderful. But he says, insane is such a meaningless word. Ooh. But so this is when they give her the sedative. And as she's going out, she's talking about Sebastian. And she said that, blondes were next on the menu that Sebastian was half starved from living on pills and salad and he was famished for blondes I guess something that um, Sebastian said or somebody said I don't know it was very meaningful to me so I wrote it down we're all children in a vast kindergarten trying to spell God's name with the wrong letter blocks Mm. and to you that means I don't know exactly but I don't know what it means but it seems profound it just really hit me in the moment of what she was talking about yeah with him and I don't know just it's a very powerful that scene where she's just talking about that he looked at people as like appetizers and this one's delicious this one's not appetizing well and I think too us now in the time post Brock Turner and Me Too and all of these things where you know women have not been believed and it's just becoming a thing to believe women to err on the side of believing the victim it's like Catherine endures so much because of course she can't be telling the truth 
because she raised her voice and was upset about it. So clearly she must be insane because she's hysterical. Because if she wasn't yelling and upset about this, then that would mean she's sane. Because a sane person would never be this upset about something. And so Violet comes to see Dr. John and she brings him one of Sebastian's summer poems. And we find out Sebastian, she keeps saying he was a poet. He was a poet. But he wrote one poem a year. That is white privilege to the umpteenth. Every summer he wrote one poem and he had like a little notebook and that would be that summer's poem. And so she brought him one and she was like, if you like it, I'll make you copies of all of his others. He's just like, you know what? I'm not interested in dating the ghost of your son, Sebastian. So quit pushing him on me. And as he's talking to her, she's saying about how Sebastian needed no one else in his life but her. And that- Yeah, she goes way out of the way to always say that it was only her for her son and only her son for her. She says that people's attitudes were not as pure as Sebastian demanded. Which, what the fuck? Well, he asks if, he asks something about Sebastian and she's like, he was pure. He was chaste. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, the lady doth protest too much. Denial thy face is Violet Venable. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, and you'll do the surgery tomorrow, right? And he's Excellent. like, uh, I don't know. Catherine wants to see you. And Violet's not so happy about this, but she's like, okay. And Catherine's just waking up from her- uh, Sedation. Yeah. And she starts saying some things to her aunt that her aunt just doesn't like. And she's like, I don't have to stay here and listen to this. I'll wait for you in that day room. Yeah. She was like straight up like this- this woman is insane and I can't take the excitement of dealing with an hysterical lady. Take her away, cut out her brain, goodbye. So the doctor comes back in, but he brings Catherine and clearly Violet is not happy about this. Yeah, because he's he sees that the truth is somewhere in what, there is truth in what Catherine's saying and he's the only one that's believing her. And so he's like, no, we need to talk about this because something about seeing you and talking about this is bringing more up for her because she has all these blocks around it. Catherine is, you know, saying these things and Violet is just going on about how she's babbling and she's saying all these lies, cut these lies from her brain. Yeah, it's like there's no effort at all to go, hmm, you know, maybe maybe she's not crazy. It's like complete and utter, like, resistance cut off, blocked, you crazy, time to get this chunk of your brain removed because then you will be nice and agreeable. And Catherine says that Violet and Sebastian fed on life. There it is again, like always the consumption. Yeah. And that they thought they were they were snobs. They thought that they were superior. And that he took Catherine as his new toy because his <gasps> mother was too old. And couldn't couldn't draw in people. Yeah. And that he used them as bait. Yeah. And so the reason he brought Catherine instead of Violet that summer was because Violet no longer could attract. Right. The bait. And that Violet had a hysterical stroke when she didn't get to go. I think it's so interesting how this part Part of it comes out, you know, before the before the big finale um, so that you as an audience member understand how, you know, how subversive all of this is probably going to be or, you know, maybe get some idea of what's happening here. But also from his perspective, how he I'm not saying he thought he was just going to come in and bada boom, bada bing, lobotomizer and that was it. But the moment she's like, yeah, uh, 
yeah, his mom would procure partners for him. I don't know if she says men at this point. Um, and she's like, listen, she aged out of this thing and then he needed to use me. And immediately Montgomery Clift is like, whoa, okay, let's hold off on this little Like, like, let's get into this a little more. And I found that really fascinating because how do you get from the point of lobotomy to all of this revelation at the end? I really enjoyed that she came out and said that. I don't know. I don't even know if we're halfway in at this point. Yes. And so, of course, the only logical next step, next step is Violet Fates. Yes. Except she's putting on because they're like, oh, she fainted. And as soon as they take Catherine out of the room, she's like, she did not faint. And she tells the head of the the hospital, tomorrow she wants the girl operated on and the lies cut from her brain. Or yeah, they're not supposed- getting that million dollars. Yeah, that's what she tells Dr. Hopstatter. And he's like, right away, ma'am. Let me get to cutting if I have to do it myself. This is when Catherine runs off again. She goes into the women's day room. And yeah, and she's going to jump into the drum. Yeah, she's going to jump, which I don't know if it's actually far enough to kill her. Well, I don't know that she's thinking the drop is what's going to kill her. Oh. I think she thinks she might get killed by the patients. Oh, maybe. Kind of harkened back to the ending the for ending. me. That's true. So I didn't know if she was trying to be poetic. I didn't think about that, but yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> she's saved by the orderly. Yes. And, and so they, they drag her back up. Yeah, they drag her back up. Dr. John is told basically that he operates or they're going to get somebody from a different hospital to operate. And he's, he makes two good points. He says, one, she might give the money to the hospital, hospital where the uh, the doctor comes from. You might right. not get it. And two, what if we get hit with a basically like malpractice thing that we didn't do our due diligence to make sure that this is what needs to be done. So he's like, okay, okay. This film deals with subjects that I could only imagine what this must have been like for an audience in 1959. I mean, this would have been wild, right? I mean, even, even now watching it, and I think that's what sort of drew me to this the first time I saw it. At the end, I was just kind of like, wait, what happened? Wait, hold on. <laughs> what is going on here? So this is a great time to take a little break. And let's talk about Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. Elizabeth Taylor is actually Dame Elizabeth Rosamond Taylor. Yeah, she was born in London, but to prominent American parents. So I'm not sure how she got the title of Dame. I think back in the day, if you were born somewhere, you could have claim dual citizenship oh maybe she had dual citizenship but she moved with her family to los angeles in 1939 american film institute also named her the seventh greatest female screen legend so katherine hepburn was the number one of the golden era but liz taylor is the seventh greatest ever i wonder where hepburn falls on that list she has to be on it i'm sure she is she was the oh. first celebrity to launch a perfume brand and These she have always brought me luck white Diamonds. And she was one of the first celebrities to take part in AIDS activism. And she co-founded the American Foundation for AIDS Research in 1985 and the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation in 1991. Yeah, she was a huge ally and advocate. She did a lot of philanthropic work from the early 90s until her death. She dedicated her time. And she did receive several several accolades for that philanthropy, 
including the Presidential Citizens Medal. She was in four Tennessee Williams adaptations, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Boom, which was based on the play The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here, Sweet Bird of Youth, and Suddenly Last Summer. She considers Maggie from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof to be one of her greatest roles. Yeah, Yeah, it was a career high point. But it also coincided with a very difficult time in her life because she had divorced and then married producer Mike Todd and yeah, had she o- divorced um, Michael Wilding yeah. to marry Mike Todd and had only completed two weeks of filming when Todd was killed in a plane crash and she was devastated by that And sh- but she returned to work three weeks later because he had a bunch of debts she had to pay and she said in a way she became Maggie and that acting was the only time she could function in the weeks after his death Yeah, that was one of the biggest tragedies of her life. And she often would refer to him as the great love of her life, Um, which famously Liz Taylor married a few times. But she always said that Mike Todd was the great love. Don't know if that was because he was the one that passed away or, you know, maybe he was. I always found that kind of interesting. She received her third Academy Award nomination for this movie and her first Golden Globe for Best Actress. And Mm -hmm. this film really played upon her sex appeal because both the poster and the trailer featured her in that white swimsuit. Yeah, and um, I was actually talking to our grandma today, and she was talking about how scandalous that white bathing suit was, because apparently in some of the early like pictures, you could see her pubic hair or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if what Nana was on, so maybe that's not true. But she did talk about like how scandalous it was for Liz Taylor to be in this white bathing suit. Wow. Yeah, but she also got it confused. She was like, she thought Montgomery Cliff got eaten. So oh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Nana was on. She is ninety six, so you know a few details might escape her. You know, she's doing pretty good. She just yeah. saw the first Wives Club for the first time. So yeah, she well. loved it. So this was suddenly last summer was made. After after Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Yes. Like, I think it was her ne- her directly her next film. And again, another Tennessee Williams adaptation. She actually picked this. This this was her choice. I didn't know that she but, had so many health problems. Liz Taylor had a lot of health problems. She had a couple really serious bouts with pneumonia. She had a hip replacement surgery in the mid-90s. She had... She had surgery for a benign brain tumor. She had skin cancer. What else? Uh, she she was born with scoliosis, and she broke her back when she was filming National Velvet in 1944, which is her first movie. So she was quite young when that happened, and that caused her chronic back problems for the rest of her life. And then in 1956, she underwent an operation in which some of her spinal discs were removed and replaced with donated bone. So maybe that's not the best place to end. So I'm going to go ahead and just say really quick, she was... Um, Sadly, Liz Taylor did pass away in 2011 from congestive heart failure at the age of 79. Her last movie that she did was a made-for-TV movie with Debbie Reynolds and, oh, I can't remember who else was in it, but I think it was called, like, Those Old Broads or something like that. Yeah, it was actually pretty big for the two actresses because if you don't know, Liz Taylor might have married Debbie Reynolds' husband. And might have started dating him while he was still with Debbie Reynolds. He may have left Debbie Reynolds for Liz Taylor. They might have all been friends. Yeah. And then they weren't. 
for obvious reasons. But then many, many years later, they made amends because both of them had divorced him by then. Yeah, they made a movie together. Do you have a favorite Liz Taylor movie? Oh, God. That's... Because I also feel like it's one of those things like kind of with Hitchcock. You've got like early Hitchcock and late Hitchcock. You have like young and more mature Liz Taylor. I mean, I think mine might be Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? See, it's like, to me, Liz Taylor is such a prolific actress. And I think she was underestimated a lot yeah. in the beginning. Because she had a lot of little kind of glossy little parts. And, you know, National Velvet is cool. Father's Little Dividend, cool, whatever. Didn't really have much going on. Or not Father's Little Dividend. That was the second one. Father of the Bride. <laughs> I was going deep cuts. <laughs> Suddenly Last Summer is one of my favorite ones. Just because I, I love how real she is. Because I think they love to dress her up and make her pretty and make her the sex symbol and granted they still did that in this one but there's something so raw and real about her and I think that this movie captured it beautifully I know that I could pick like a favorite favorite but like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is amazing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof like she has she has a lot of bangers so just pick one one I haven't seen that I would really love to see is Butterfield 8 I have that she won her do you I've never seen it but I mean obviously she must be outstanding because she won the Oscar um, I have this really amazing... I've also never seen Cleopatra. I haven't seen Cleopatra or Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, it's like some of her later films I didn't see, but I really do love Liz Taylor. She's one of my favorite actors, and also I just loved her as a person. I'm sad I never got to meet her, because I feel like we would have been friends. I have this really amazing Turner Classic Movies Greatest Legends collection that has Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Butterfield 8, Father of the Bride, and The Sandpiper. Let me see the cover for that. I have seen two of those movies. I've never seen the sandpiper we got some homework i also have xyz i don't know if you've ever seen that one i don't think i have like i'll watch anything with her i love her i think this might have also been known as z and company this one was directed by the same guy who directed nightwatch our first movie (gasps) oh my god we've come full circle let's go back to our story we gather all the players together at violet's house Violet doesn't know this is happening. The doctor wants everybody there because he is determined to jog her memory and make her face this trauma. Because he's like, once she faces it, then the work we can figure out what's going on. But you know, he still is pretty adamant that she doesn't need the surgery and he's using this opportunity to prove that. So everyone is gathered. We have the the head of the asylum. We have Miss Violet because it's her house, so duh. We have the good doctor. We have Catherine's mom, her brother. Foxiel is there. The lady is there. The Venus flytrap. I really, Everyone's there. I really like the part uh, because he wanted to see Sebastian's death certificate. So Violet thinks that's why he's coming. She doesn't know everybody else is going to be there. So she gives him the death certificate and she's like, oh, it's in Spanish. If you can't read Spanish. And he's like, oh, I can read Spanish. And she's like, oh, well, I have a translation. We love a multilingual king or a bilingual king. Something's fishy. We know that something fishy is about Sebastian's death because she's very adamant that he died of a heart attack. Yeah. Like, do not question it. Do not question it. Right. It's a heart attack. But the coffin was sealed and there was some trauma to the body because he fell on the road when he had his heart attack. But the doctor's like, but what kind of trauma? Because just falling over doesn't usually 
hurt a body too much. She's like, oh, no, no, no. He had a scratch on his face. We couldn't see it. Uh, Seal it. They take everybody out into Sebastian's garden, and he gives Catherine an injection. And she says, what is it, truth serum? And he's like, no, there's no such thing. So I have no idea what he gives her, honestly. She thinks she's given a truth serum. Yeah, and it works. That's, so. that's the important thing important thing is so yeah she's given this truth serum and she launches in to oh wait no 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 because she's she kisses the doctor yeah first she's they like have that out of the blue kiss she asks if she can stand up and he says yes you can and she goes no you have to tell me to then i think i could so he tells her to stand up and yeah she just starts like making out with him for some reason oh yeah it's that old hollywood like i'm pressing my face really hard against your face and it's so romantic but it just looks painful and then dr hockstetter is like uh are y'all ready yeah he's not like a patient doctor relationship what the like this is this is horrible he's just like you done yeah and so yeah they take Catherine out into the garden this is when she says again suddenly last summer suddenly last summer but the whole story starts to unravel i like how they have her at times like her face kind of on one side of the screen fading into the memory of what happened yeah i really love that and i love sort of like the gauzy frame around it Mm -hmm. as well it's such it's such like wonderful lo-fi like how do you do this how do you how do you put memories up on a screen and and how do you also know that this person's actually talking about this right now it's such a fun way to just take all these different pieces and just mash them together and present them and we learn what she means by sebastian like to use her and Violet as bait. And one way that he would he did that was by buying her this very scandalous white bathing suit that she was like, I, I was like, I was very uncomfortable wearing this, but he's like, no, 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 wear it. Dragged her into the water so it became see-through. And she's like, ooh, because they were in Cabeza de Lobo, and one side was like the hotel beach, the nice fancy beach. And then one side, the other side was like the free public beach where all the riffraff hung about. I'm not sure that's how she said it, but that's what it kind of alludes to, I would say. She's on the fancy private beach side, but that's when he drags her into the water in this white bathing suit. And then all of the boys on the public beach side start climbing the fence and just ogling her. There's basically like background comments being made, mostly by Violet, going, that's not true. Not true. She's lying. Like, you can tell she's lying because Sebastian would never go to a public beach. Just, you know, stuff like that all throughout and her story. And she's like, bitch, did I stutter? Oh. It was a private beach. Oh, yeah. And she mentions the dueling oaks at one time. And her mom is like, don't talk about that. And the doctor's like, I already know about that lady. Shut up. Literally. I think he even, I think she's told to shut up at one point because she's such an idiot. Yeah. Like, I know, I know, whatever, but. I, I have very little patience for that woman because she's selling her daughter for $50,000 or I guess 100000 technically, but still. Catherine's talking about how everything on the day that Sebastian died was white. White, was hot, white hot, white pills, white suit. And, you know, he bought her a white swimsuit. But after he was done with her, uh, she could wear a, a dark suit that didn't turn see-through. Yeah, once he got all the boys' attention, because then once he got everyone's attention, then he would go over, I guess we should just go ahead and say it. I yeah. Guess. So Sebastian is a predator. So, I mean, obviously in the film, he is portrayed as gay, but I don't think that's 
Like, he is gay, but that's not the takeaway for me. It's Sebastian is a predator, and he uses Catherine as bait to lure in these boys so he can have these sexual encounters that aren't 100% consensual. But the way he gets it is through, like, giving them food and money and things. And so I, I don't know. They don't go into detail about the encounters, but it's just led to believe it's a very seedy, dark, not good thing. And that was the whole point of traveling with his mother and then why he didn't take her because she could no longer lure the young men and that's why he took Catherine yeah and then she had her tiny teeny tiny convulsion yeah. Or whatever she called it. I have, I have a question for you. Something that I started to think about upon this rewatching, they make a big deal out of how Catherine Hepburn sort of aged out of procuring men for uh-huh. her son. So that's why he went with Elizabeth Taylor. It made me wonder, is he also aging out of this as well? You know, is he also getting older? Is there a little bit of that in here? They never quite say it. They never quite point to it. But I would think, I would think he, he had to be older than Elizabeth Taylor, probably, given how old Catherine Hepburn is in this film. It just made me wonder, is there a little more frustration in his mind? And and again, not that we know a whole lot about this character. I mean, we don't even see his face or anything, but this trip doesn't seem to have worked quite as planned. So I just didn't know if there was maybe some underlying frustration with him in the fact that he is sort of aging out of, you know, maybe not being quite as virile as he used to be. I think, and I didn't write it down, but I think that there was a line somewhere where she said something about his looks <coughs> weren't <coughs> as good as they used to be or something like that. Okay. Um, but yes, the, my understanding is that they were both aging, but mm. that he felt he could still, I guess, like do this if he had somebody younger, right. but it wasn't as easy as it had been for okay. him. Yeah. Maybe I maybe I heard that looks line and it just it jumped out in a way that it hadn't before. So the day that Sebastian dies, like everything's white and they go into this restaurant to eat and these boys start gathering around the restaurant and they're like they're banging on like tin like trash cans and makeshift instruments. Yeah. And they're just making this awful music and they're just standing out staring and they're at the restaurant. She's like, let's just go back to the hotel. Let's just go. But he's a snob to the very end. Yeah, he he is a snob um, completely and he says basically that beggars ruin the country for people and don't look at them and yeah he got didn't he get mad at the restaurant for allowing them to be near yeah there's a fence around the restaurant so they can't get to him but like letting them be near I have a question for you real quick before we continue sure she keeps saying these boys these boys in the movie they're not boys they're like well they're all sorts of ages. I took it to be like teenage, 18, 19, like young boys. They're just, I would, I just saw them as younger than Sebastian. Okay. I didn't know if she was meaning like children. I mean, oh. that's not portrayed in the movie. They just seem like they're a lot younger than Sebastian. Cause I don't know how, I'm guessing Sebastian's in his thirties or forties. And then I, I don't see these boys being of age necessarily. Like they might be in their early twenties, but they all looked to be teenage. Okay. Okay. Age. I didn't, but it's like, that's still children. Under 18 is children. Right, so, but yeah. I, d- I wasn't sure if... It wasn't like young, young children, but okay. teenage children is what I gathered. 
but yeah, so he was he was preying on these on these younger boys. I read it as she was just calling people younger than her children. Okay. That's that's how I read it. I could certainly be wrong, but I also wonder, and I think this is something we certainly need to talk about. What exactly is it that that caused this, this sort of event to happen? I mean, given that he has done this time and time again, year after year after year, what is it that you think happened this time? to make it turn out the way that it did. Because I, I started to wonder, I was like, well, are these children? Like, did he do something to one of these kids or a few of these kids that maybe he shouldn't have or and maybe he hasn't done before or something like that? I don't know that we're given 100% of the reason why this happened. I didn't know if it was regarding money, regarding paying these people, and he didn't or something like that. Do you have any sort of idea of what you think? I was wondering if maybe, again, since mommy's not there with him this time. Mm-hmm. Well, that that was one of the reasons that I was wondering if it actually was children that he was going after this right. time. Or if maybe, yeah, he wasn't paying them enough. Mm-hmm. Or if, because he clearly, he you know, he has a line about don't look at the beggars, they ruin the country for everybody. Mm-hmm. So he clearly has this rich people mentality of like, oh, I'm better than you because I have money. Or if maybe getting like rougher or meaner with them. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought and, and sort of something that I don't know is related to the fact that he is aging and, and might be quite frustrated with this. You know, things aren't coming so easily to him anymore. I didn't know if he had taken it out on these people. This crowd and it I mean it's a it's a sizable group. I mean they are in a frenzy. I wasn't exactly sure what was going on here. There's a certain level of hate or upset that you mm-hmm. have to get to to literally like eat somebody. That yes, it's not just so. usually, oh, you didn't leave me a good tip or you shorted me a little <laughs> bit. And getting them to perform these sexual acts through coercion. Yeah. And then by the end, they're surrounding him and they're like like pointing at their mouths. And they're asking for bread. Bread um, and they want money and they're making this makeshift music. And so she's like, can we just leave? And he's like, basically like this riffraff, it's just dirting up the whole thing for all of us. And he won't get a taxi. She wants to go down to the harbor to get a taxi, but he doesn't. He starts climbing this hill and she can tell that he's not doing well, that he's having problems with his heart. He's like sweating and he looks really bad and he's wearing the white, a white suit. The band starts following him and chasing yeah. him up this hill. and Yeah, so, he starts running. And she's running after him, and they just keep going higher and higher, and he's doing worse and worse. But they keep following him, and so it's like, Sebastian, this band of boys, and then she's running up behind, but she can't keep up. Sebastian runs past this figure that's sitting on a bench, and it's a skeleton in this robe. And then when Catherine runs by it, it's an old lady in a robe. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Which I thought was kind of a cool little touch. They chase him up to the top of this hill where these ruins are. They overtake him, and she said he screamed just once. So she runs to get help, and when they come back, he is all in pieces. She says it looks like they tore or cut pieces of him with their hands. Like they devoured him. I hope this is where the phrase, eat the rich, 
I also like the fact that this mob or that this group or whatever, I mean, they are laser focused on this guy. The fact that Elizabeth Taylor appears to be about eight feet away when all of this is happening, hiding behind some rocks. And even Montgomery Clift is like, wait, they didn't, what did they do to you? And she's like, I, nothing. They didn't even, they didn't pay attention to me at all. I thought that was really fascinating. It's tough to tell how much time is passing as well in these flashbacks, because it almost seems like, you know, she was on the beach and he bought her that suit and these guys are tearing down the fence to get at them. And then the next day he's killed and eaten. It, it was really tough to tell how much time was passing be- between these events. I assumed that they had been there for a while for the fact that, yes, they, they were angry enough to actually tear him apart. Yeah. But then she had a line at one point when she had been given a sedative and she was just kind of talking before she passed out about how he said they'd been there too long. And oh, he, yes. Okay. He wanted blondes next. And You're right. Yeah. And he really did seem agitated. This was when they were eating. Or yeah. Something, right. Okay. And that's the last thing she says. She just like almost when I think of because I know word vomit is associated with rambling, but the way she just has to push the word out, that's what made me think she just has to force. They devoured him like the way she says it. It's so cathartic. Yeah. It's a really cool shot because she's holding on to the railing around this little like patio in the garden and it's just filming her face Mm -hmm. that's framed by this railing but apparently she was really into method acting and she became so hysterical during the filming of this scene that they she couldn't stop sobbing so Mm. she like was really sobbing at the end of this which method acting is really dangerous yeah it can be but i guess for this it worked and she was fine it worked for her so she has this big cathartic breakthrough and finally can reveal what happened and then the next scene is just this poetry book it's one of sebastian's poetry books that um was for the for the last summer but he didn't write a poem and so it just shows these hands closing the book and it's violet and it kind of close up on her face and Catherine hepburn hated the close-up on her face on this last these last shots because she wasn't wearing a lot of makeup and the lighting was kind of glaring and it was just kind of made her look bad and so she was like not cool guys but i thought it like looked great for what was happening she raises her head and she is just completely cut off yeah. from reality like completely detached and i think um off the deep end might be that might be a little not nice to say but she has basically disassociated from reality well she thinks she's on a boat so um often and the doctor is sebastian deep end might not be completely wrong yeah so she she's no longer in her garden she is on that that boat sailing to the Encantadas. she's with sebastian she takes the doctor's arm and she's like oh sebastian there you are and they walk inside together and she they put her in the elevator and she's talking to him and she's like i'm going to go speak to the captain you know as she rises up in her elevator Mm -hmm. and fox hill starts crying yes because i think she knows her lady is her lady is gone yeah and then the last thing that we see is the doctor going back to Catherine, who's still in the garden and she takes his hand and they walk into the house so i'm I'm going to assume that the lobotomy is off. That's Yeah, that's I, what I'm assuming. So I don't know if the hospital got their money. I don't know what would happen in 
that yeah, I don't particularly care because all they were doing is lobotomizing probably people that didn't need to be lobotomized because yeah. that's fucked up but yeah it's just so fun how how sort of the, the healing of Elizabeth Taylor completely breaks Catherine Hepburn how both of these things happen simultaneously from this story but of course Catherine Hepburn has money and nobody's out to get her so she probably gets to live very comfortably for the rest of her life and nobody's like let's lobotomize her well it's weird too because this is another thing about this movie and I remember watching watching this you know for the first time thinking this at the end when she goes up and maybe it is the idea that this is it almost feels like the end of an Agatha Christie movie because my thought was like okay so wait are we calling the cops like <laughs> is she guilty of something here like I I don't I don't know how all of this works out in the end for any of these characters because she hasn't committed a crime I don't think <laughs> and that's the thing that is so confusing about this at the end it's just kind of like oh I guess I guess everything I guess problems solved but Catherine Hepburn is completely as you said disassociated from reality now because even oh her poor maid how she starts crying at the end I felt bad for that woman she's an interesting character that we don't <laughs> learn anything about yep. other than she really likes to feed the flies to the Venus flytrap <laughs> yep and that she apparently really likes her employer she's crying and it's like okay does she keep living in her house does she go to the right? institution yeah. I don't I don't know what happened here. <laughs> they just swap one yeah. out for the other one. They're like, well, we have to discharge her, but you know, guess what? We have a replacement right here. Maybe the maid was so upset because now she's out of a job. That was part of it too that I was wondering. <laughs> so that's where that's where our movie ends. So it's like overall, very, very minimal scenes, but just so much packed into each one. Because it is just kind of like, oh, she remembered, so now all problems are solved. No more yeah. no more trauma or anything. She's all good. I do I do love that just it is such a wonderful convenience that is sometimes in movies and this this one is one of the best this just amazing like remembering just the convenience of being like now that I remembered this event and talked about it, it's never going to bother me again. <laughs> I am okay for seemingly the rest of my life. Yeah. Th those images of my cousin being eaten, no more. That's not going to bother me anymore. <laughs> no, no. I worked it out in an afternoon. But yeah, the whole, are they dating? What's going on? Because that scene where after he gives her the injection of whatever he gives her that we have no uh -huh. idea. Yeah. And then she just like starts making out with him and he doesn't do anything yeah. to stop her it's not like oh no this this is an inappropriate relationship or right. anything yeah and that's why i was wondering as well because she does that twice because I think she does it once when she is in the asylum with the nun. Um, she starts to kiss him there and he has no reaction also. And then that made me think, and it's never said, that made me think, okay, well, is the is the Montgomery Cliff character gay also? I, I don't know why that would be the case and I don't know why that would matter with everything else that this play is touching on it made me think okay well that could be the case or maybe he's actually professional and realizes that this is not th this cannot be happening right now I like that that interpretation though that that his character is gay I hadn't mm. thought about that my thought was that maybe he just was like okay this is what she needs to do in this moment and he wasn't right. stopping her but it's still weird Weird. It's just still weird. Oh, it's very weird. Yeah. Or it's something where he's like, let's get this crazy out of you. And then I am totally down for this. <laughs> if that was a movie that was made 
now or honestly within the past 30 years that scene would drag on for another five minutes yeah. like like we'd have like we'd have after this story we'd have another five minutes and then another three minutes of credits after it there, there's something so nice about these films where it's just the end fade to black great done you did it i feel like sometimes that that gives the audience a little bit more credibility too because it's like oh now right. we get to we get to live with what do we think happened after this is over instead of the filmmakers yeah. having to say no 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 this is this is what happened this is my vision you have to get my vision of what happened right Catherine Hepburn went inside we as an audience want to know what's going on with that oh wait we have to deal with Elizabeth Taylor but the fact that he's just like hey you're all better now take her away she's going to be fine now we can get back to the the great ending with Catherine Hepburn like you know that's that's what we as an audience want to see we want to make sure that Elizabeth Taylor is okay and she is but we want to see what's really going on with Hepburn once once all of this has been just poured out in the yeah. open but um have we talked about Tennessee Williams do we want to talk a little bit about Tennessee Williams who um wrote the original one act play Yes, obviously one of the greatest playwrights all time. Thomas Lanier, 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 Lanier. Thomas Lanier Williams the uh, third, known by his pen name Tennessee Williams. He was raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and after years of obscurity, at the age of thirty-three, he suddenly became famous with *The Glass Menagerie*. I have something to look forward to. I turn thirty-three next year. Oh, it's coming! I missed my time. My game. The play closely reflected his own unhappy family background. I have to say that this play is exceedingly sad but it has a character named Lara in it so it does have a soft place in my heart. It's like most of his stuff is kind of sad and fucked up but I don't know I think it reflects life. He nearly died from diphtheria that left him weak and confined to his house for about a year. Uh, he had seven plays on Broadway between 1948 and 1959. It's pretty successful in my opinion. Not too shabby. He was really close with his sister Rose who was diagnosed with schizophrenia and actually went through a lobotomy which is part of the inspiration for this play and she was institutionalized the rest of her life and he was very upset with his mother about that he had a very strained relationship with his mother uh he moved around a lot because he said only some radical change can divert the downward course of my spirit some startling new place or people to arrest the drift the drag Mm. oh and just in case you didn't know Tennessee Williams is gay and a lot of his plays centralize on gay themes something that Laura and I were talking about earlier a term that I just learned is queer coding and a lot of his stuff centralizes on gay topics and gay culture but because of the time period it was written in he had to code it so that basically the only way you would know what it was is if you were gay and in the lifestyle and if you weren't it would gloss right over your pretty little head yeah there's a quote from Gore Vidal that said because Gore Vidal is also gay yes or was gay Gore Vidal passed away yes I guess he's gay somewhere else just on a different astral plane speaking before his death in 2012 with the Hollywood reporter, Vidal discussed running into a policeman shortly after the release of Suddenly Last Summer. And the policeman said I just saw the movie you wrote. Was that guy? And then he uses a word that I'm not going to say. A slur. Yeah. Vidal told him I think he was, yeah. And the policeman was really excited because he figured it out and his wife didn't. Which, I mean, to me, it's glaringly obvious that Sebastian was gay, but I guess it wasn't two people in in 1959. Well, yeah, because if you didn't know what gay was, how could you even guess that he was gay? That's true. 
And this is a this is an article from IndieWire that I will link in the show notes. But it also says that, of course, Vidal never tells us what Sebastian does with the boys he has his ladies procure for him. And the fact that he dies and dies brutally was good enough for the production code, which gave the film special dispensation to portray Sebastian because it illustrates the horrors of such a lifestyle. Yeah, and when actuality it had nothing to do with being gay, it was he was a predator. Right. So, but it's like, that just goes to show how ahead of the, the times he was. Yeah, and even if somebody didn't get some of the stuff, like, okay, to me, it's right. very, very obvious that Sebastian mm-hmm. is gay, but apparently that wasn't yeah. as obvious to some people when the movie came out. But even aside right. from like that, it's very clear that he gets eaten. And that wasn't yeah. really something that happened in movies around this time. No, 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 not not a whole lot. Not until the, what, cannibal, you know, explosion of the late yeah. 70s. Um, yeah, that, but again, I mean, it is, it's one of those things where it really is the time that this was made. Because strangely enough, I would figure that censors would have more of an issue with the gay than they would with the fact that people are eating people in this. Yeah. And, and the fact that you have Gore Vidal writing this, which I think, you know, it's a great idea to have him come in and write this because I think he was smooth enough and smart enough to handle these subjects in such a way where censors weren't, I don't want to say weren't tipped off or didn't know what was going on, but I think he was able to hide some of these elements a little bit Strangely enough, in plain sight. Yes. They still couldn't just do whatever they wanted. They they couldn't, but nothing is hidden here. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I feel like they did. I, I feel like they they did what they wanted to. But, but also, I feel like someone watching this now is going to understand all of this. And I don't necessarily know that, you know, your run-of-the-mill late 50s audience would. That was a question that I had. If you don't get that part of it, then why do you think that he got attacked? And she does. She very plainly says that they were bait and that they got people for him. I don't think she says men. He dragged her out in the water so that her swimsuit would become transparent so all these guys would come over. Why Mm -hmm. would he want all these guys to come over? I don't know. Maybe people just left the movie going, I don't know. I didn't get it. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. Or people left the movie going, wow, what a weird pervert that he'd want to just see other men have sex with his mother. Like, but that's even more strange. Like, I, I really don't know what people would have yeah. thought. Yeah, that is interesting. I would love it if we just found out that on that day, for whatever reason, all the censors called out sick and there they was just one person like, I don't know, just it's yeah. fine. It's fine. Let's just go through. And it's like everyone in Hollywood was gay. Everyone was fucking everybody. It's like everybody was just gay. There's, It's like, yeah, it, it's like it was just a different set of rules. And so it was just commonplace people living their lifestyles. And then there was like a different set of rules when dealing with the public. So and that's the whole thing. It's like they didn't care what was happening in Hollywood behind closed doors. They just cared what was shown on the television because the gay lifestyle was alive and well way before that. I don't think there was any sort of crazy uproar over this film. No, from what I understand, it did very well at the box office and mm-hmm. there like the reviews were pretty good on it. So nobody I didn't hear mm-hmm. didn't read any articles about 
protests or yeah, people right. getting all upset about it. But an interesting thing about this movie is in 1973, Vidal distanced himself from the movie in an interview he did with the Village Voice because he said that he particularly criticized the ending which was tacked on by the director. He said we were not we were also not helped by those overweight ushers from the Roxy Theater on Fire Island pretending to be small ravenous boys. Mm. And then Tennessee Williams said that the movie went too far afield from the original play and made him throw up. Because they really did have to do the most with that really grotesque ending. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like, I love this movie for the performances. Because I think they're just such good performances given by the three leads. But the story, and especially the ending is really problematic and it's like you know it's cool that they were able to get some kind of gay representation i guess but the only way they were able to do that was to make the gay character literally a monster which i'm not sure i'm i want to read the play because i don't understand the trauma has to be there sebastian had to die traumatically or there's no story well and like tennessee williams a lot of his stuff's you know centralized on gay characters but he had to make them like undercover sneaky gay yeah so it's like it's very possible that you know more was left to the imagination in one of the plays but they did go out of their way to make it really grotesque and yeah that's the part of the film because it's like her her monologue is fantastic Mm -hmm. but the whole thing is is really ugly yeah it's very disturbing very disturbing but obviously i don't think this is good representation for queer culture at all. I am not one. I, I can't speak for anybody and, you know, maybe I'm missing something. For me, this was more about, like, how people are treated. And it's, like, how women are treated in this movie by men as, like, you know, they're not to be believed. They're they're an object to use and to discard when you are done with, with them. But it's not just women. It's, it's people. So it's, like, you know, when in the beginning when Catherine Hepburn is doing her monologue about the Encantadas and... The baby sea turtles and their soft underbellies and the flesh-eating birds feasting on the baby sea turtles. It's like, to me, that was a representation of how Sebastian consumed people. I think that's what he, he, he saw himself in the Encantadas. She said she didn't want to watch and he made her. Well, and because again, this woman lived in Denialsville. It's like she didn't want to watch the ugly thing, but he's like, no, you need to look at the ugly thing. By the time this movie came out, Tennessee Williams had earned two Pulitzer Prize, three New York Drama Critic Circle Awards, three Donaldson Awards, and a Tony Award. Wow. So not bad. Not too shabs. He left his literary rights to the University of the South in Swanee, Tennessee, an Episcopal school in honor of his maternal grandfather. Oh, okay. he died in 1983 at the age of 71 in New York. Do you have a favorite Tennessee Williams play? Goodness gracious, I do love Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I love uh, Streetcar. I don't. I don't want to say that I love. It's not like I'm like, oh yeah, let's watch this Tennessee Williams play because it's just so entertaining. But like again, his stuff is such is so reflective of life. So it's not like I watch it for fun but 
I appreciate everything that I watch of his. To me, it just it's just reflective of what kind of is going on in the interpersonal inner workings of ordinary people. Because I think that was kind of his his gift in a way. It was kind of just like not ordinary characters because they were large in life characters, but they could be anybody. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I don't know. I I I think Cat on a Hot Tin Roof probably right now is the one that I'm leaning towards the most. I know everyone's like, oh, Streetcar, Streetcar, but I haven't seen that one in a long time, so I can't I can't say for sure. And I haven't seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in a really long time. Do you? have a favorite adaptation film adaptation I, I really do think cat on a hot tin roof is phenomenal hands down it's my favorite it's it's really great basically all takes place in a house in a single location and you know paul newman yeah. elizabeth taylor can't go wrong it's it's super it's over the top dramatic i don't think it goes quite as far as this one does so it doesn't push into camp and i hate to keep saying that this movie is camp because it's not a mommy dearest or something like that but i'm just talking about the way these performers take it and how far they do take it but yeah check that out at some point there's a really cool article i'm going to link to in the show notes from cinemaqueer.com about this movie i recommend everybody take a look at it it asks questions like is sebastian or his mother the real monster in the movie and well because there's an argument there because it's like she obviously denied a part of him yeah his entire life and you know how that affect how does that affect someone well and there's also people make an argument maybe there was a little bit more than a mother-son relationship going on there because she talks of them as a famous couple Oh, like maybe some abuse? Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. So there's that aspect on it too. Well, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. It's really dark when you think about it. Like, the more I'm sitting here sitting with it, again, the performances are astounding and wonderful. And they deserved all the nominations. But this is a dark piece of film. Oh, yeah. Very, very dark. Really, really dark. But again, superbly done. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if because Sebastian talks about he saw the face of God in the Encantadas when he watched the birds eating the turtles. And it's the cruelty. The cruelty of the world and this isn't a benevolent God. This is like good and bad, evil and good, predator, prey. And so I wonder if he saw himself in both aspects. Like when he was the sea turtle and then was the flesh-eating bird. So some things to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- there's only a lot of deep, deep thoughts and inquiries to be had. But a funny thing that I found, it humored me, um, especially it made me think of Jamie on your podcast because mm-hmm. they say the title of this movie yeah. four times in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I I noticed that. I didn't know it was four times. I felt like I may have heard it twice. But even more than once is one too many. Yeah, I think Elizabeth Taylor says it three times and... Catherine Hepburn says it once. Well, and I think when Catherine Hepburn says it, it's the most effective. Like, it's a a wonderful way to explain what happened. Because I think it's after Montgomery Clift asked her um, when her son died or when did he die. And her explanation is he died suddenly last summer. And and it's such a great title. Like, that is, that's not the way that I would think this title works. I would think it works in the way that Elizabeth Taylor says, which is, well, suddenly last summer. 
summer, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that her son died suddenly last summer, I think that's so effective. Yeah, it does seem it's the most natural usage of it. Every Mm -hmm. time Elizabeth Taylor says it, it's very glaring. Like, there it is. She said it. But Elizabeth Taylor knows the truth. He did not quite die suddenly. I mean, you know, Catherine Hepburn's like, oh, he had a heart attack. It must have been really quick, I guess. What would you rate this film? Oh, I'm totally going to give it a B plus. I I think that there are elements, like I said, that makes this feel a little draggy. But again, I've watched it more than once. It's it's still a good movie. It's still shocking, even for now. I mean, I, I feel bad for anyone that has just listened to this podcast without watching it first. I would hate to have had this spoiled for me before I watched it. I mean, this movie looks fantastic and, and a lot of it has to do with the the sets. And I think, did it did it win an Academy Award for, I don't think it was called set design at the time or art direction at the time. I forget what it was called at the time, but it was at least nominated. I don't know if it won. Yes, best art direction. Taylor, she does, she gives a great performance in this, but it is, it's a very showy performance i really do think katherine hepburn might be the better one elizabeth taylor feels like she's in a play yeah <laughs> katherine hepburn feels like she's mm-hmm. in a film and sometimes too the the quieter performance gets overlooked by the flashier performance oh definitely and i'm not i don't even want to say i have a problem with what elizabeth taylor was doing because sometimes you you go big you go big and i love it and i'm not saying that it just didn't work here but i feel like my eyes were always on katherine hepburn It it didn't matter if she was speaking or just standing around while somebody else was i was always looking and interested in what she was doing 100% agree with that. I know we ask this question every time, but still it's... I mean, I think this has to be an A because the performances are magnificent. The filming is really cool there's some really beautiful shots like I was talking about with her face framed between the fence posts and the the work with the elevator and in the garden and then when she's telling the story there's shots where her face is kind of fading in and out between the scenes that are her memories and um, oh yeah it's a whole mood and the way that she's shot on the balcony when she's getting ready to jump and you really feel like you're up there with her the music and the costuming and and you know me I love a dark story what about you I would have to say a as well strictly for the film because it is well made I do think the ending does feel a little bit hurried and tacked on I would I would have liked it just to end with her ascending just being like nope I'm on a ship now I'm gonna go talk to the captain yeah yeah I think overall it was a it's a really well done film and just yeah you can't, the performances are undeniable, you know, and with so many movies of this time, it's very rare for one not to come out problematic. And there are problems, but I think it was revolutionary to get a film like this made when it was made with the subject matter it had. Oh, yeah, because I mean, like you said, it talks about it talks rape. about rape. It hints at possible like incest. It has women's issues, lobotomies, proper treatment of people. Or, yeah, probably. Proper, proper care for um, people that need help that are in emotional crises or mental crises or things like that and the, the treatment. Although they make that place look real damn nice. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this doesn't look too bad. Like the worst thing they do is a lobotomy because all of these people look clean and like the nurses look nice, but I'm just like. Also, it has a rich person trying to buy something unethical. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of concept of like the sea turtles and the flesh eating birds and just 
using people and doing with what you will and discarding them. Because I mean, that not that what Violet does with Catherine when she becomes a nuisance and starts threatening the image she's created for her son, then she throws her away. So um, yeah, I, I would say A for this, but it's a cautious A. You know, just watch with caution because, you know, I don't want anyone to be upset or tr- triggered by something, but it is a really well done film. Recommendation. Okay, so my recommendation is a movie that I just watched the other day in preparation for this. It is A Place in the Sun from 1951 directed by George Stevens screenplay by Harry Brown and Michael Wilson starring Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters. Tells the story of a working class young man who is entangled with two women. One who works in his wealthy uncle's factory and the other a beautiful socialite. This movie is based on the murder of Grace May Brown. I found out about this through a episode of the original Unsolved Mysteries show because apparently Grace May Brown still haunts the lodge near where she was drowned. I found out that that story was the basis for this movie and then of course Elizabeth Taylor and I'm like, ooh, murder, Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. This is perfect. So that's my recommendation, A Place in the Sun. Nice. And, what, and like you said, one of the three uh, movies that Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor made together. Yeah. What's your recommendation? Well, that was going to be my recommendation, but you can have it. And I'm going full circle in honor of our two-year anniversary. This is also a film of a woman not being believed when shit's happening. It's the subject of our very first episode here at Fatal Films, Night Watch, starring Elizabeth Taylor. And this is based on a play called Night Watch by Lucille Fletcher. So it was made in 1973, runs about an hour and a half. And yeah, it's just a good old mystery thriller. Got a lot going on. So again, this was our first episode. So if you want to watch it and then go listen to that first episode, you can hear how bad our sound was. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was kind of weird. I thought that was kind of um, fortuitous that it was another Liz Taylor mystery where she's not being believed she's being gaslit but oh wait she's actually knows what she's talking about. Do you have a recommendation? I do. I don't know if you've ever seen there's a Criterion Blu-ray of Vanya on 42nd Street. Oh no I haven't seen that one. Oh okay Uh, it's a film by Louis Mal. It's basically a stage play with uh, Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn um, Julianne Moore yeah, Julianne Moore's in it. I think it's from the early to mid-90s, 94. That's when it is. Uh, but it's great because all these actors come together in what appears to be like a dilapidated theater. And the film starts with them just kind of like sitting on stage and just talking about theater. And then they're like, okay, let's uh, let's put this on. The rest of the film is, is basically them putting on this play. You don't see the audience. You don't see any more the theater. You know that they're on stage, but it doesn't 100% look like they're on stage. It looks and feels like a film, but it's 100% a play. It's, it's really, really interesting because that's not normally what you see. You either see somebody filming a stage play or it's adapted for the screen. But the fact that this opens with them just hanging out in this old abandoned theater and then it feels very filmic once they're actually performing. It's great. That sounds fantastic. I am definitely going yeah. to have to check that out. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I like getting recommendations because I'd usually try to watch everybody's recommendations too. Oh, okay. No, that's great. So it's yeah. Not- yeah, thank God for podcasts. Like I've <laughs> I mean, honestly, I get so many movie recommendations from just listening to different podcasts. Oh, yeah. I can't keep up most of the time. And then, of course, if you listen to any of the ones, um, like uh, there's one that I like called Just the Discs, which is Mm -hmm. all about Blu-rays. And then I'm like, 
well, crap, I need a whole bunch of money to go buy all these Blu-rays now. <laughs> I, know. I know. Thank you to all of you who have been with us for the full two years, or people, if you're tuning in for the first time, thank you for joining us for this anniversary episode, and we look forward to being with you for a while longer. Maybe two more years. Maybe five more years. Maybe 50. Yeah. You can't get rid of us. No, no, by then I'm gonna probably... No, you know what? I'm gonna leave it open. Maybe 50 years from now. We'll do a podcast. Cool. We'll come full circle. We'll do Nightwatch again. I'll have a whole new meaning at that time. Be like, because in 50 years we'll be in our 80s. Oh, cool. That sounds about right. We'll be pushing 90 and I'll be (laughs) a um, stunning youthful 92 nice no i'll be 82 math i meant to say 80s and i said 90s (laughs) i will be 82 you will be pushing 90 anything else no i think we can say goodbye to these good folks okay oh real quick let me plug our patreon five dollars a month gets you access to all of our bonus episodes we got some fun stuff coming up i am currently editing our knives out bonus episode that we recorded with brian green from the theme park this podcast well you you got to record i missed brian oh yeah we're gonna do a special favorite vampires episode See, Lara, Lara's speaking my love language because i do i love mystery i love horror that's why i'm here but i love vampires and i love fantasy yeah we're gonna do we're gonna rate vampires and i'm so excited and i also know that i get to choose a movie for you guys to cover yes you correct? do <gasps> So excited. It will be a horror movie. I will give you my options very soon. Very good. I'm excited uh, because you're the first person who's pledged that level. So I'm curious to see what you're going to pick for us. Uh, Yeah, me too. (laughs) I have no idea, but but it will be a horror movie. Excellent. I guarantee that. Some episodes that you already have access to are our quarantine movies set in one location. We've got, oh man, we did an episode about the things we were excited for this year and a lot of those things aren't happening. Yeah. So we can save that for next year, too. We'll just re-release it. We're so (laughs) excited about these things. We've got, like, wrap-up episodes from the Film Noir Festival, Noir City, and just a bunch of stuff. But if you want to give us as little as a dollar, you can do that, too. And then we have other levels that get you other bonuses. Check out our Patreon if you feel like what we do is worth five bucks. What we do is worth five dollars. So I'm not going to say if it's worth that because it is worth that and we need to treat it as such. But if you would like to see more content like this, five dollars really goes along way in the podcasting world because you can buy coffee with that and you can also pay your hosting fees all, all of the all money of we get are important all the money we get from the patreon goes towards our our hosting fees well my hosting fee is coffee so that's that's how Laura keeps me on the show is she has to give me coffee no I meant like the actual like where we put the episodes up so let's talk about where to find your podcasts. Oh, yeah. Just, I mean, if you're interested, find Good Times, Great Movies. Just wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find it. We have a website. It's a lot to type in. I know. Well, thanks, Doug. This was a lot of fun. Really no. appreciate you coming on the show to help celebrate our second anniversary. Oh, yeah. This is your second anniversary. Congratulations to both of you. No, this is, that's really great. And I'm so happy to... Be a repeat guest. Yeah, and we will have you on again. I guess that's all, so say bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Femmes. 
Like us on Facebook at Fatal Femmes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Femmes. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemspodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode, because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.